Uh, actually, though, this morning we're turning our attention to the prophetic books, so we're going to begin um, with a reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 2, the beginning, and then we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. So, Isaiah 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And Acts chapter 8, verse 29, right in the middle of the story of Philip, near the beginning of the story of Philip in the Ethiopian. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer's silence, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm pretty sure we can all sympathize with the Ethiopian guy. Um, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, for most people, I think, are a fairly intimidating set of books. We more or less know, or think we know, how to read biblical narrative. But what do we do when confronted with the jumble, as it seems, of material in a book like Isaiah, which doesn't seem easy to read chronologically or consecutively, which frequently seems rather obscure in meaning. What are we to do with that aspect of Scripture, and how are we to preach uh, these prophetic texts? I'm guessing here, but my guess is, if, the, if you were taught very much at seminary about reading the biblical prophets, Probably what you were taught was that you must read them historically. And what that may well have meant to your teacher was that you must not only read the prophetic books against their historical background, but that actually you must read their various parts first and foremost against their specific historical backgrounds. And so taking that point seriously, which is a good enough point, I'm, I'm not against it, Obviously, that means, first of all, reorganizing our thinking about the prophetic books so that we order them historically, chronologically, 
rather than canonically, because, of course, the order in the canon is not necessarily the historical order. And this is something, I think, that uh, trips up the ordinary Bible reader big time. And it can be a revelatory moment when the ordinary Bible reader understands that actually these prophets have a place in the story they've been reading. And you can actually locate them uh, in the story. Uh, we shouldn't take that for, sort of thing for granted, it seems to me. That's not obvious, right? People have to be helped to do it. And it's very easy to do, and I'm not going to dwell on this because it's not the most important thing I want to say today, but I mean, just uh, the simple task of, of helping people to understand, roughly speaking, when these prophets functioned in the 8th century and which parts of Second Kings to go to to get the background story and the kinds of circumstances into which they were speaking, that's all quite important, I think. So you can do this very easily with this little schematic that I use in class. I simply go through each one briefly, and I locate them as much as we can against their immediate historical background, all the way down to the 6th century, and then we have a number about which we're not quite so sure, but most uh, modern scholars believe that these are all uh, later books, although in the case of Jonah, of course, looking back on a much earlier prophet. So this is a pretty useful exercise in terms of setting the, the historical context in which these biblical prophets actually operated. And uh, the great advantage of that as a starting point is that we are now clearer which other biblical texts we can bring into the conversation directly. We're now clearer about which aspects of non-biblical archaeology, for example, might be relevant to the reading of a prophetic text. And I think, actually, that takes us a bit further forward, quite a bit further forward, and begins to make the prophets look like real flesh and blood people not just texts floating 10 feet above you know, reality, as it were. So I think, uh, as a starting point, that's great. But I don't think that's really yet adequate um, for preaching the prophets. And much of what I'm saying today relates to what else needs to be said. I'm going to take all of that for granted, because by and large, I'm sure all of you folks in the room um, with a bit of education behind you, you, you know that kind of stuff, and that's not, uh, it's not rocket science, as it were. But I don't believe that we have yet set the overall framework for reading and preaching the prophetic text by merely doing that piece of important work that we've just done. Because the individual prophetic oracles, no matter when they were first, first uttered by Isaiah, uh, no matter when in the flesh and blood ministry of Isaiah they were uttered, the individual prophetic oracles do not come down to us now as individual pieces of text. That's not how we receive them, yes? We receive them now embedded in prophetic books. Somebody has put effort into giving us these oracles in a particular form, right? And although at first sight this may appear to be fairly random, it is in fact very far from random. Very often 
there's a, a quite evident structuring going on. There, there's thoughtfulness in the presentation. When the people who put the book of Isaiah together were thinking, how might we most powerfully and accurately reflect what Isaiah was about to later generations, they had a plan for doing that. And so the question of the context of the individual oracles is a hugely important part, I think, of preaching prophetic books well. And I want to illustrate this first point with respect to the book of Isaiah and beginning with the passage that we read a moment ago, which is a very well-known uh, passage, of course, um, with its language of uh, the, the plowshares and the spears and so on, and, and the peace and, and, and all of that. It's a very powerful passage. Uh, what I just want to note with you, though, is the puzzling, the initially puzzling fact that right after the final line, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. After this glorious vision of the future, and without any real transition, we go straight into, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination, and so on and so forth. And it seems a very abrupt transition. And uh, it's the kind of thing that, as it were, throws the reader off initially. What is the relationship between these two passages? It, surely it was not just that the scribes had space in the scroll, you know, and they had this oracle, and, ah, what the heck, we'll just chuck it in there. I mean, I, I don't imagine that that's what happened, right? You've got to think there, there was a plan. So trying to grasp the larger structure of the parts of Isaiah, I think is rather important for the preaching of the book of Isaiah. So, um, in search of structure, the first and most obvious thing to notice is the various headings in the book. Right at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, in the passage we read, we get a bit of a hint that we are beginning a new section. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's a heading over the chapters that follow. And uh, we go on then until we get to chapter 13, verse 1, and we get a new heading, an oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. And that's a signal that we're moving into a different part of the book. The, that second part of the book is going to be largely oracles against the foreign nations, right? So we, we, we have clearly demarcated sections of the book, and that's the first thing uh, to uh, notice. And then within each section, and I think this is where uh, modern scholarship, more recent modern scholarship, has really done a lot of excellent work, I think it's then possible to see that within each section, there's a carefulness to how things have been organized. So, in Isaiah 2 through 12, just this section, which is where we're going to focus for our example, what we really have at the beginning and at the end of, of this section are two gloriously hopeful oracles. The first one we read. The second one, uh, where chapter 12 comes to an end, we have a hymn of hope, another hymn of hope, concerning Zion and the people of God. The glorious day when Israel will say, surely... God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. 
he has become my salvation. So we begin and we end with glorious oracles about the future of Zion. And this is really, in, in literary studies and, and uh, in biblical studies, this is what is typically called an envelope construction. An envelope construction is where you begin and you end with something very similar or the same, and you invite the reader to read everything in between in the light of the beginning and the ending. Right? So here's a signal to us. What's the big picture here? The big picture is the glory of Zion. That's where this book of Isaiah is heading. Right? That's where we are going. Uh, we have these envelope constructions, actually, um, not just in biblical literature, but actually in Christian liturgy. Um, just go back a week, um, and then a few more weeks behind that. And, of course, we have just been uh, celebrating Lent. We recently came to the, the end of uh, Lent. Just before Lent, we celebrated, many of us anyway, Shrove Tuesday, did we not? And at the other end of Lent, we celebrated Easter Sunday. Those are two ends of an envelope. They're two bookends, really. And we cannot understand the significance of Lent unless we understand that it lies between Shrove Tuesday and Easter Sunday. You see the point? Lent is not an end in itself, right? Lent is a period of time in between two celebratory moments. Lent is a difficult journey between two points of joyous celebration. So even liturgically, we have this kind of thing uh, going on. And that analogy, I think, fits Isaiah 2 through 12 really well, because here, too, we find two bookends about glorious celebration, and in between we have a lot of material that's actually pretty dark, okay? If you read Isaiah 2 through 12, you're going to find a lot of judgment oracles because the glorious Zion is very far from the reality. Zion as it is in the 8th century is not at all like that vision of Zion that's being proclaimed. So now we have a, a gap uh, between the ideal Zion and the real Zion, to pick up on Laura's language uh, from, from last evening. Um, so a lot of this material is about the moral darkness of Jerusalem, right? It's, it's, it's a, a very unjust society. It's an idolatrous society. For the prophets, those are two sides of the same coin. Why, why does injustice arise? Injustice arises because of idolatry. People worship the wrong things, and they begin to treat each other badly because of it. That's, that's how it is, right? That's, our, that's the world that we often live in. And Isaiah 2 through 12, a lot of the material looks forward to a day the day of the Lord, when God's justice will deal with all of that stuff. And so you have a number of oracles linked together very often by catchphrases, like, in that day, in that day the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the pride of man shall be humbled. In that day people will throw away their idols before the terror of the Lord. It's a bit like a drumbeat. There's a re repeated refrain that just keeps you focused on the terrible nature of this day that's coming because things are so bad. So you get that immediately after this first oracle, this glorious oracle, you get in that day, in that day, in that day. In chapter 5, Israel is the vineyard 
lovingly cared for by God, but yielding unworthy fruit, and now to be devastated. John's gospel picks up that idea, of course. Same idea. Chapter 8. The people of God walk in darkness as a result of abandoning God. So a lot of these repeated ideas all the way through these chapters. So the theme of God's justice is fully worked out in this section of Isaiah. And that's important. That's important. It's important for us. It's surely part of our prophetic task in our generation to also speak about these, these truths, the justice of God. Uh, we don't live in a world that's less idolatrous, I think. We don't live in a world that's less unjust or less oppressive than, than Isaiah's world. Uh, telling the truth about that is really, really important. Uh, it's important that the truth is proclaimed about the distance between the holy God and the world in which we live. At the same time, though, it is significant to notice the context in which these oracles of judgment are placed. The envelope actually gives you this right away. What's the context for these oracles of judgment? The context is one of hope. Right? That's the big picture. And it's not only within the envelope of the beginning and the end that we have hope in Isaiah 2 through 12. Interspersed, Throughout these chapters, we also find other oracles of hope. Uh, on, the, on the screen there, I know this is rather small, but I've tried to do this so you can see it schematically. If you come in one indent point from the outside envelope, uh, you'll see there, noted just in green uh, font, these various, various oracles of hope all the way through Isaiah 2 through 12. So the sequence of judgment oracles in chapters 2 through 4 ends with chapter 4, verse 2 through 6, in that day, so you've had in that day, in that day, bad stuff will happen. Chapter 4, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and so on, you see. So judgment for sure, but hope. At the end of chapter 8, the people of God thrust out into darkness, walking in darkness, but of course, in chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Okay, Very famous passage, of course. We know that one well. In chapter 10, we're told that Israel's sins are going to result in the Assyrians coming and uh, providing divine discipline for Israel. Right? So the Assyrians are going to come, and when they come, we're told, it will be like the destruction of a mighty forest. Cut all the trees down. And then we're told a lot of things that help us deal with that. Because that by itself is, is just despair right there. That's just the black hole of despair. The Assyrians are coming. They're going to decimate this mighty forest. But, says Isaiah, the king of Assyria, remember people, he says, is not an autonomous being. The king of Assyria is an axe that lies in God's hands. And because the axe lies in God's hands, there can be hope after judgment. It's because God is the one wielding the axe that there can be hope. The king of Assyria thinks of himself as a god. But in fact, he will discover that he is not. And indeed, it will turn out that the destruction of the forest is not complete because a shoot will appear in the stump of Jesse. 
Christmas passage again. The king, a king will emerge. With that king in place, everything will change. There will be a return from exile, rather like the exodus, cosmic redemption, universal peace and justice, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and so on. So you see the point that judgment in Isaiah 2 through 12 is necessary, but it's only the precursor to the coming of the kingdom. It's only the precursor to the glory of Zion being revealed. And, and the significant thing about this, and I believe this to be biblical thinking overall right the way through, is that the judgment of God should really never lose connection with the hope that God gives us for this glorious future. That's how I, Isaiah 2 through 12 is structured so as never to allow judgment to escape from hope, as it were. It never becomes a self-standing thing. Uh, and I don't believe that we should ever preach in a way that allow those, allows those two things to actually escape from each other. Perhaps you would never dream of doing that, but some people dream of doing it, and some people do it. Um, I well remember a trainee pastor in our church back in Scotland. Uh, he arrived in our church with a very interesting theory about the relationship between preaching and pastoral care. On Sunday morning, he said, you break the people down. And then from Monday to Saturday, you pick up the pastoral pieces. <laughs> well, okay. Um, we took a while to, to talk him out of that. Um, but of course... Uh, if you just speak about God's judgment, all you produce is despair. You, you don't even produce repentance necessarily, right? Uh, without the hope of God, without the love of God, without the goodness of God as the bigger frame to that, it, it doesn't lead to good places. So uh, it's very important not to let judgment and, and hope escape from each other. And in fact, the light of hope never burns brighter than when seen against the background of darkness. There's another reason for not letting them escape from each other on the other side of this equation. And here I think we can make a mistake in the opposite direction to my trainee pastor friend. Particularly, I'm afraid, if we inhabit a lectionary tradition that has already taken texts out of their contexts. Uh, lectionaries are great, and they're certainly better than nothing. You know, I mean, they, at least they get the Old Testament read, if you're lucky. Uh, it might even get occasionally preached, so I'm, I'm not against it. But you understand there is a problem here, because it means that you will only ever really focus on very particular Old Testament texts, taken out of context. Right? And so we might find ourselves preaching in Advent about the people walking in darkness having seen a great light, but we don't really ever fully explore the darkness before we do it. I'm not sure that, that becomes sentimentality, does it not? It doesn't really, it's not really what Isaiah is saying completely. We paint a marvelous picture of the cosmic peace of Isaiah 11, where the wolf lies down with the lamb, but we never paint that picture against the background of the mangled forest of God's judgment. Even the Emmanuel prophecy, chapter 7, loses its prophetic edge all too easily. Stripped of context, clothed with sentimentality, such that God with us only ever possesses positive connotations. 
Which in the book of Isaiah, God being with us is not necessarily a good thing. It all depends. I mean, God with us in the midst of our idolatry and lack of trust, well, you see what I mean? We strip the passages out, and, and they lose their force, actually. They lose their power, in fact, to produce repentance, because the hope is not connected to the judgment. So I think we can make mistakes in two ways here, and the only way of avoiding this, of course, is to deal with the book of Isaiah as a whole sec- this whole section as a whole section. And to try to understand why it's organized in this way and what that means about how we ourselves might preach it. This brings us to the narrative heart of Isaiah um, 2 through 12. The bit right in the middle there, I think I've got a better one highlighting it. So the, the narrative, you may have noticed and been puzzled by the fact that in the book of Isaiah, unlike many of the other prophetic books, you don't at the beginning get any story about the prophet himself. You don't get introduced to him. Jeremiah, you get introduced to right at the beginning, but not Isaiah. The narrative occurs in the middle of this section, not not at the beginning. And that suggests to me that we are meant to read the narrative in the context of everything else we've just been talking about, right? Um, So that, that I think, is is fairly clearly an intentional move by those who put this book uh, together. Uh, So the larger context we've discussed, what does the narrative have to say? Well, of course, this is where you read about the call of Isaiah, the vision he has in the temple, in the midst of this apostate culture we've just been discussing. This is the moment when Isaiah first grasps the great truths we've just been talking about. So now we're seeing how this plays out in the narratives of Isaiah and King Ahaz. That's the context. Woe is me, do you remember, he says, when he recognizes for the first time, feels for the first time, that God is holy. Woe is me, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the personal appropriation of the truths we've been talking about. And Isaiah is sent then to proclaim that message to other people. Uh, But he's also told that actually in the short term, they're so stuck in their sinful ways that it won't really have much effect. And then you're shown how that's true because he goes to try persuade Ahaz. So you're given a little example of what the problem is going to be. King Ahaz is preparing for war. It's clear he's preparing for war rather than trusting in God. That becomes clear as you read the story. Ahaz refuses to trust God, and in the book of Isaiah, he is the picture of lack of trust, where Hezekiah, his son, is the picture of trust. If we were talking about the whole structure of Isaiah 1 through 39, right at the heart of that would be Ahaz and Hezekiah, as pictures of what trust and faith looks like. Because Ahaz will not trust, Isaiah prophesies that the Assyrian invader will not only attack northern Israel, but also Judah, and two of Isaiah's children are signs relating to these prophecies, She'ar Yashuv and Maher Shalal Hashbaz, known to his friends probably just as Baz, I'm thinking. (laughs) And then the third child that we know about, the royal child, Emmanuel, God with us, to be born in the near future, 
in, in Isaiah, before he is very old, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So we're talking in the first instance about a child in the context. Most likely, I believe, Hezekiah is intended. But of course, in the context of the book of Isaiah, it's not that particular royal child who brings the cosmic redemption that Isaiah 11 speaks about. And so the Emmanuel prophecy, as it were, as you read the whole book of Isaiah, gets detached somewhat from this particular historical child and uh, begins to be caught up in this grand vision of the future, the child who is still to come, as Brevard Childs uh, puts it. The sign of Emmanuel was already understood messianically by the tradents of the Isaiah tradition and shaped in such a way both to clarify and expand the messianic hope for every successive generation of the people of God. So every king comes along, every son of David comes along. There's hope in that coronation. This might be the one, but of course it doesn't work out that way and the hope gets deferred. And as we saw yesterday, eventually it touches down in the Emmanuel Child, capital I as it were. Uh, but of course, uh, Jesus with us is also about judgment as well as hope, is he not? You see, so the, again, avoiding, being prophetic and avoiding sentimentality in this very sentimental culture is, a, I think, a very important thing to, to uh, think about. This is how Matthew picks it up when he talks about the, the, the Isaiah vision being fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, and I think what fulfill really means is that Jesus gives us the full picture of what this means. This is the fullest expression of what this Emmanuel idea means. So my first point then is that we only ourselves get to the full picture of Isaiah 2 through 12 by paying careful attention to the particular passages in the context of the other passages round about. So thinking about the structure, thinking about the why question. I'm sure there are many ways in which those who passed on the Isaiah tradition could have passed it on. Here's the way they chose. Now why did they do that? Right? Why did they do it this way? And I think this becomes very important, I think, for, for preaching the individual parts. So that's one kind of context that I think is important. There's also another larger kind of context. Because not only do the prophetic oracles not come down to us individually, isolated, they're already embedded in books. It's also true to say that the prophetic books do not come down to us individually either. The prophetic books are already bound up with the entire prophetic corpus. We talked about the law and the prophets, right? By the time we get to the New Testament, we already have something called the prophets. It's a corpus of literature. Um, and, and we discover in this tradition that, in fact, as it, as it was growing there was a lot of cross-referencing even going on. You may have noticed this, that some prophetic books even borrow bits from other prophetic books, and you find the same oracle or the same narrative in, in different parts because it was understood that they were growing together as the prophetic word of God. Even though they may have begun life in rather different situations, they, they are being treated uh, together. 
By the time we get to the late 5th and early 4th centuries, we find the latest of the books of the prophets already, uh, it's the book of Malachi, of course, already concluding with an epilogue that David Peterson has said, rightly, I think, the epilogue to Malachi presupposes a collection of the latter prophets with Malachi at the end and with a collection of Torah and former prophets preceding. Right? This is intended as, a, as an, a backward look on the whole tradition and a forward look to what's coming next, the end of Malachi. Um, so it's not just the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is already part of something much larger. Here's what Christopher Seitz has to say about this whole process by which the canon becomes the canon with respect to the law and the prophets. The individual prophets of the three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, the minor prophets, are provided a history of prophecy in Joshua through Kings that locates their activity in time-specific contexts, yet also seeks to understand prophecy as a uniform and coordinated phenomenon operating within the providential episodes of post-Mosaic leadership until the fall of Jerusalem and beyond. Prophecy and law, he says, are inseparable. Already, very early on in the post-exilic period. Later in the 4th century BC, uh, Stephen Chapman uh, draws attention to what he calls the persistent pairing of law and prophets as Scripture in other parts of Scripture. The books of Chronicles in particular, he says, the chronicler works with a canon of Scripture very much like the one we know, the law and the prophets, he means, and he works with a conception of Scripture that we can recognize as that of the law and the prophets. And so by this point, the law and the prophets have reached relatively stable form. Uh, at the beginning of the 3rd century BC, it is the canonical collection of law and prophets that then begins to be translated into Greek in the Septuagint. So we already have the, the basis of our biblical canon in final form, really, in its final uh, shape. And this is very evident, I think, when you look at the individual prophetic traditions and you find that again and again, as in the narratives, they invite us to consider other texts while you're, while you're reading their text. There's this cross-referencing uh, going on. That final quote from Stephen, Stephen Chapman. What's the nature of this literature? It is a cumulatively expanding intertextually referential body of normative communal religious writing. Now, that's a fine collection of long words. Uh, he just means it's all hanging together, folks. That's what he, actually, what he actually means. Now, this is very important for us to grasp because it implies already that the reading of individual passages within the context of one prophetic book is not all we need to be doing. Right? It already implies we have to be thinking bigger than that. Even if we were to preach all the way through the book of Isaiah by itself, arguably we would not yet be doing what we need to do to help people understand Isaiah. That's the implication of this. Because Isaiah is already in conversation with Micah, for example. Right? 
So that, that's a very important thing to, to know, and uh, I want to illustrate the importance of it by thinking about the minor prophets. So moving away from the three big ones. Daniel in this scenario is part of the writings, by the way. Many of you will know that, but if you wonder why Daniel's not on this list, it's because Daniel was not part of the prophets in the Jewish conception of things. So, the minor prophets, the smaller ones, Hosea, Amos, Nahum, those guys, obviously these are individual prophetic books, but in the Hebrew tradition, they are also regarded as one book because they all fit on one scroll. They're often referred to as the minor prophet scroll. So they're one book with 12 parts. They're not just 12 individual books. Uh, so the minor prophet's scroll uh, as you might expect, because of what we've been saying, they are ordered. There's an evident ordering. It's a, it's a conscious thing. The ordering is partly chronological. It's also partly thematic. Chronologically, we generally move from the 8th century down through, but thematically, you also see connections like this one. Sorry for the size of the font. Uh, Joel precedes Amos. And Joel 3.16 is very closely linked verbally to Amos chapter 1, verse 2. And you see that kind of thing going on all the time. Uh, you see it also in Amos referring to Edom just before you get to Obadiah that's all about Edom. You see, so there's a conscious linking of these books. So this idea that we're dealing with one book as well as with 12 books obviously implies that we want to be conscious of that as we're dealing with individual books. Now, why is that important? Well, let me try and explain why it's important. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to do a preaching series on the book of Nahum. <laughs> if you have, you will probably not have been contemplating a long series. Uh, the, the, the book is only three chapters long, although I have to tell you that in the Scotland of my youth, the brevity of a biblical book was not necessarily a reliable predictor of the length of a sermon series. <laughs> uh, preachers who can preach 45-minute sermons on the phrase, and Enoch was not, <laughs> are perfectly capable of spending, you know, 12 weeks in the book of Nahum. So in the tradition of expository preaching from which I came, out of which I emerged, preaching in a leisurely fashion through entire biblical books was pretty much a thing that you did. It was a normal thing to do. So the question in that tradition was not whether a book like Nahum should be preached. Everyone thought you should. It wasn't even the length of the series. That was a matter for negotiation, I guess. The question was, how should we preach it? How would you preach it? Because the problem, in a sense, that confronts the preacher is that the book of Nahum is a book of one theme. It's a, a theme grounded in a very specific period of history. The whole book, as the opening line indicates, is an oracle concerning the city of Nineveh the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It's an oracle against that city. It's fierce, prolonged, graphic, and disturbing. How may that message be 
generalized so as to apply to the church and the world in which we live. There's your, there's your challenge right away. Uh, the opening verses, I think, give us some help. If we read them carefully, the Lord is the jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, though, and great in power. But the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is good and a refuge in times of trouble. Notice the balancing again there. You see that? Everything that God is, not just the one. So even in an oracle of judgment, you're being reminded of the justice and goodness of God, the slowness to anger. Notice, though, that the oracle against the individual city, Nineveh, is grounded then in the character of God who holds all nations accountable. So that's the first clue as to how we might approach this. It's, it's not so much about Nineveh by itself. It's actually an example of a much larger biblical theme. So that's a bit of a, a, a clue. What's about to happen to Nineveh is only one instance of what ultimately happens uh, to God's enemies if they will not turn and repent. But even so, the book of Nahum is clearly a book of unrelenting divine judgment. And one of the obvious questions that arises from this is, will an expository series on Nahum actually result in the preaching of the whole counsel of God? When we consider that broadly. Are we, in fact, supposed to preach on Nahum without considering the rest of the counsel of God? This is where the significance of Nahum being embedded in a scroll with other books around about it becomes very important, right? Because consider the larger context of the book of Nahum. Just beforehand, we have read the, the last few verses of the book of Micah. If we're reading it as one book, anyway, that's what we've done. We've just read the end of Micah. What does the end of the book of Micah have to say? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers long ago. God delights to show mercy, says the end of Micah. Um, I sometimes challenge my students to find any text that tells us that God delights in bringing justice on people. This is the heart of God, right? God delights in showing mercy. That's who God is. God is the God who hurls our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So this is the God that Nahum is talking about. This is where we've just come from, right? That immediately contextualizes Nahum. Helps you with the larger context. And then what about the prophetic book that you read immediately after Nahum? And, and this is where you begin to see very clearly that the ordering of our books is not coincidental or accidental. Which book follows Nahum? It's the book of Jonah, is it not? That's a rhetorical question. It is. <laughs> well, now, what's the book of Jonah about? It's about an Israelite prophet told by God to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach against it. 
Are we getting the message now that there's a bigger picture here? But Jonah, of course, is a very strange prophet. Instead of obeying God, we are told, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. This will help. He's told to go to Nineveh, but he gets on a boat and heads for Tarshish. That's just about as far away as you can get. That's the end of the world, actually, in those days. Nobody knew what lay out there in the ocean beyond that. So southern Spain is the end of the world, the ends of the earth. That's how desperate Jonah was not to go and preach in Nineveh. So the same city that Nahum is talking about. Jonah's told to go, and he doesn't want to go. The extent of his avoidance is revealed by the way that chapter 1 of the book develops, and the Hebrew here gets the thing in a way that the English translations very often don't. Uh, What you have to realize here is that in verse 2 in the Hebrew, Jonah is told to get up and go to Nineveh, but what he actually does is he goes down instead. He doesn't get up and go. He goes down to Joppa on the coast. The Hebrew verb is yarad. That's the repeating verb all the way through. Then we're told he paid his fare and went down into the ship. And then we're told that on the ship he went, guess where? Down into the ship's hold. And uh, down, down, down. Eventually, he, having all other options disappeared, he chooses to go down into the ocean. Do you remember? So he's told to go up, get up and go, and he goes down, 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 and eventually um, there's a big... Uh, Splash. (laughs) This is a very clearly contrary prophet of God, right? Uh, The pagan sailors on the boat know much more about God than Jonah does. They don't know much, but they know, for example, that you probably shouldn't try to run away from God, right? They know that's a dumb thing to do. They know in verses 13 and 14 that you probably shouldn't throw even very irritating people overboard in a storm. (laughs) Verse 16, they know enough to know to fear the Lord exceedingly and to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to make vows. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom says scripture. These pagan sailors, they they get an intuition of what's going on here. So there they are being as pious as they know how. Uh, Not a bit of this from Jonah. Where's Jonah in the midst of all this? Uh, Well, of course, he's down there sleeping and, you know, keeping well out of, of the whole thing. Why is Jonah behaving in this extraordinary way? Well, the answer becomes clearer as we move along. It's all about God's delight in showing mercy and Jonah's lack of delight in the same. That's exactly, it's really exegeting the end of the book of Micah. And challenging is about the, the true meaning of the book of Nahum. Right? These three books together are preaching to us all together. In chapter 2, we find Jonah down, you remember, in the great fish that has miraculously shown up to rescue him from his watery grave. We find him praying, thanking God for delivering him from the depths of the grave when he was hurled into the deep and had seaweed wrapped around his head. It's a great prayer. And we think, well, great. He's recovered his faith. Good for him. He's back on track. 
He's understood, as he says in this prayer. Salvation comes from the Lord, he says. Uh, so this is, this is good stuff. The great fish spits him up onto dry land. God's word comes to him a second time. Go to Nineveh. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So all of this is right the way it should be. This is good. But how deep is his change of heart? <laughs> he goes to Nineveh. He preaches a sermon. I think we can agree that it's a ridiculously brief sermon. Uh, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. End of sermon, benediction, lunch. Uh, Jonah is very enthusiastic about the salvation of the Lord when he's the one who's in trouble. He's not so enthusiastic when it's the Assyrians who are in trouble. And this unflattering portrait of Jonah is born out in chapter 4. Jonah's unremarkable sermon gets a response beyond the average preacher's wildest dreams. <laughs> the entire city is seized with a fever for immediate repentance from the king down to the cows. You remember? <laughs> Cosmic repentance. Unbelievable repentance. And what is Jonah's reaction? <clears throat> Jonah, we're told, was greatly displeased and became angry. The salvation of the Lord celebrated by Jonah's prayer has enraged him. Absolutely enraged him when it comes to the people of Nineveh. He's a tremendous hypocrite, Jonah. He prays well. Beautiful pray, prayers. But he doesn't live his prayer. So it's no wonder, as one commentator has said, that it's immediately after Jonah shouts, salvation comes from the Lord, that the great fish throws up. <laughs> but we're not done yet. We're not even done yet. Jonah is angry with God for being compassionate. He goes outside the city. Very curious incident, you remember? He makes himself a shelter, sits in its shed, and waits to see what would happen to the city. That's very strange. Nineveh has repented. Jonah knows what's going to happen to the city. That's why he's angry. So what's he doing out here waiting to see? And what's this business with the, the shed or the, or the shelter? Um, he makes himself a shelter, in the very next verse, you may remember, God causes a vine to grow up over his head. By the time we reach the next verse, the vine has gone. There's no further mention of the shelter. What's going on? Very puzzling. But I think I, 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 think I know what's going on here. I think Jonah is giving God an ultimatum. Yeah, he knows what God has said. Jonah just doesn't accept it. So he's going out there to wait and see. As it were, what God is God really going to go through with this thing? You know, so he knows exactly that Nineveh has repented, but he's not willing to accept the outcome. And he goes outside the city to see what will happen as a result of his conversation with God about the whole fiasco. Because you know, he knows stories about prophets talking to God and God apparently changing his mind, right? So he knows that that, that possibility, biblically speaking. 
I think he's saying, it's either them or me, God. You know, I'm your prophet. It's better for me to die than to live if you go through with this whole thing. Um, so that's part of what's going on. The shelter, well, I just think that Jonah is not a very good shelter builder. <laughs> We're told that without the vine, the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, even though he has a shelter. So the shelter's not doing a great job. And that's pretty much par for the course with Jonah. Jonah is not very good at self-protection, generally speaking, in this story. It's not surprising that his rather pathetic attempt at the shelter should also fail. So where are we by the end of this um, very powerful story? Well, the prophet Jonah, we discover, is mainly an obstacle to God's plans. Even though God uses him, still, to fulfill his plans, Jonah comes across as a far less sympathetic figure in this book than any of the other figures, including the Assyrian king. By the end of the book, the pagan sailors have found God, it seems. The people of Nineveh have found God. Jonah, you could say the cows have found God if you wanted to. Jonah is the only creature in the whole book who by the end has not repented. In retrospect, you realize that this was the missing element even in the prayer in chapter 2. What was required was a prayer of repentance, actually. What we got was a prayer of thanksgiving, which is not quite the same thing. It's a bit of an apology without a repentance, right? Uh, and so the whole portrait here is of a people of God who, unlike God, do not delight in mercy. The kind of people who might well cheer Nahum along, you know, as it were. Um, and, and really want that to be the outcome, not to be an opportunity for repentance, right? And that's how Jonah is portrayed. And so you see the importance in this case of reading Nahum in the context of, of Micah and of Jonah to get the fully orbed picture of, of what's going on in the prophetic book and the dangers involved in just preaching the bits or even just preaching the whole book. It's just not enough yet. The whole context is very important. And that leads me just to a very few closing comments before our break. Because, of course, for Christians uh, dealing with the whole canon of Scripture now, the whole context for our reading is the whole thing. So it's not just the prophetic corpus. It's the whole thing. And I've said before that my profound belief that when we really engage with the Old Testament a whole bunch of things become clearer about the New Testament and deeper and richer. So let me just give you one example of, of how this works. We're reading here of a God who seeks the lost in Nineveh or wherever, a God who prefers redemption to judgment, even if his own people prefer the opposite. Major themes in, in the Jonah story, in the prophets. Major themes, obviously, in the Gospels, very obvious ways. But also in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, we read the story, I'll just, uh, here we are, the story of the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius. Do you remember Cornelius? Cornelius lives in Caesarea, a devout and God-fearing man. He has a vision, of course, which tells him to seek out the apostle Peter. The Peter is having a vision at the same time. You remember he has the vision of all those animals. And uh, this leads to a meeting between Peter and Cornelius. 
the Holy Spirit falls on all the Gentiles present, they are baptized because Peter has come to understand the missional heart of God. And he changes his mind on some key points, and that's what enables this tremendous conversion experience. Peter responds very differently from Jonah, in other words, in his response to God. And two details, two small details, make the interconnected of these stories, interconnectedness of these stories really clear. And I don't know if you remember uh, these small points, but uh, they're quite interesting. Where is Peter when Cornelius summons him to Caesarea? Do you remember? He's in Joppa. Isn't that a curious coincidence that you have a story thematically so similar and you also have Joppa at the center? Joppa is the point of departure in both stories. It's the starting point of Jonah's journey away from the Gentiles. It's the starting point of Peter's journey toward the Gentiles. Coincidence? I think not. I think the New Testament authors are always looking for these connections. They're always looking to draw attention to these kinds of connections. And secondly, do you remember Simon Peter's full name in the Gospels? In Matthew's Gospel. Usually it's Simon, son of John. In Matthew 16, just after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus refers to him on this one occasion as Simon, son of Jonah. Peter, from the family of Jonah, who comes from Joppa to preach to the Gentiles. He does what a prophet should do. Jonah does the opposite. You see, you see how the fullness of that picture uh, comes out as we see these connections. So just to sum everything up and conclude, the prophetic oracles individually are great. Reading them against their historical background connects us to people back then who in many ways were just like us and God's word to those people in those particular moments. So I'm by no means against the idea of preaching the individual oracles with attention to historical context. All I'm saying is there's more than historical context. There's literary context. There's context in the section of the book. There's context in the book. There's context in the prophetic corpus. And there's context in the whole of Scripture. And it seems to me that that really reaching the depths of our prophetic literature requires that we consider all of that and don't get narrowed down, really. That's my big idea for the first part of the morning. Thanks. (laughs) 